You are listening to a podcast produced by the Center for West European Studies and the John Monet Center of Excellence at the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and Sound. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Thanks so much for being part of our program today. Yeah, no, thank you, Ryan. Thanks. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you know, the, the support of CYCU Center, World Affairs Council, uh, and RECAS, uh, Ellison Center, uh, for, for, uh, for support for, for this program. Um, I, I actually was uh, the managing director for the Center for West European Studies. Well, actually, 20 years ago, I was manager, uh, the assistant director for the EU Center, back when it got started, back when, just before the Euro was introduced. So, um, you know, I've been doing Euro presentations for a long time uh, in one guise or another. I've seen it kind of develop over time. Um, and I'm not going to give a full presentation on the Euro uh, today. This is going to be kind of a brief overview of where the Euro has come over the last 20 years, looking at successes, challenges, and you know, possible futures. Um, so it's, it's very introductory. Don't get into a lot of economics and stuff like that. But hopefully it's useful overview. Uh, and then uh, we'll do that for about 25 minutes total. And then I want to spend the bulk of the time on Brexit, which is a topic of, of uh, great interest to me. Uh, and it's, of course, very current right now. Uh, so we'll spend the bulk of the time on, on Brexit. And it's a presentation I've, I've given in different venues. Uh, and it keeps, I thought I'd be done with it. I get, I've, been, I've been doing versions of the presentation for three years now. So it keeps changing and it stays interesting. So I hope you guys uh, enjoy it, and we'll have a conversation about where Brexit is at right now. So let's start with the euro, and um, it is the 1999, the introduction of the euro, um, and I like this. So it's the 20th anniversary, and I like this photo of uh, these EU uh, officials, the, the uh, European uh, head of the European Commission at Saint Jacques Santerre there, uh, and. Uh, they're showcasing the design for the euro. Obviously, uh, not <laughs> the size that they went with in the end. Uh, this is for a press conference about six months before the uh, introduction of the currency in 1999, which started first as just a paper currency. It wasn't in paper and I uh, said, so, you know, it wasn't uh, a hard currency in papers and bills, an actual physical currency, I should say, until 2002. So when it came out in 1999, it was just you could have like bank accounts or insurance policies, bonds, et cetera, denominated in euros, but people didn't have it in their hands until 2002. We'll get back to that on the next slide. So the idea of a single currency uh, had been around a lot longer, or before, a lot, uh, way before that. Um, back in the 70s, there were ideas for a single currency. And it makes sense um, to introduce a single currency as you know, the next step in European integration to complement you know, the deepening economic integration that had been taking place since you know, the EU was uh, formed as the EEC in the late 1950s. So um, the, um, after the end of the Cold War uh, in 1989, um, leaders of Europe saw an opportunity to pursue deeper integration, but also bring in new member states 
from uh, the former uh, Soviet Eastern Bloc. And one of the things they did was there was kind of a bargain made, which was Germany was reunifying, and the French and some other countries were skeptical of German reunification because they thought, like, Germany is going to be so powerful, it's going to just kind of be dominant or be, want to be on its own. How do we keep Germany's, you know, solidly glued in the European project? And the Germans wanted to stay, of course, in the European project. They wanted to be good Europeans. But the idea to them of a single currency was a little daunting because it's like, are we, you know, are we going to be flip, uh, putting the bill on this? So the compromise was France would support German reunification and Germany would support the euro, but the caveat would be they wanted a central bank, the European Central Bank, to be based on the Bundesbank. In other words, tough on inflation, tough monetary policy. So that was the compromise that led to the introduction of the euro uh, that was laid out in the Maastricht Treaty in the early 1990s, and it would complement the European single market which came into effect uh, January 1st, 1993, which was a free movement of labor, capital, goods, you know, real, a truly integrated market for Europe. So the currency then will come after that to really bring it together, to reinforce the integration that was taking place in the 1990s. So the 1990s was a big period of deepening integration in, in Europe, very, very ambitious. So a single currency, um, if you remember traveling in Europe in the in the old days, uh, when they had multiple currencies, it was inefficient. They keep changing money, it was confusing. It's like, how much is this in lira versus pounds and francs? And um, so just as travelers, it was confusing and inefficient. So for an economy, you can imagine just on the scale, uh, how much more efficient economy would be with a single currency. So it, it, the idea was that it would increase cross-border trade and investment. It would eliminate exchange rates, uh, costs, transaction costs, and currency fluctuation risks, and just increase transparency and competition overall. So those are obviously all clear benefits of the single currency that complements and reinforces the idea of a single market, the move towards a single market. And some lesser known effects would be it could, you know, especially with a European Central Bank modeled on the Bundesbank, it would lower inflation and uh, interest rates, so people could borrow money more cheaply across the Eurozone. So not just the Germans could borrow money cheaply, but other Euro members could, would have low inflation and could borrow money more cheaply. We'll get into kind of the, one of the side of, uh, effects of that in, in, in a couple slides. Um, and you would now have this strong uh, global currency that could weather major economic shocks. So, you know, the individual countries don't have to worry about oh, our currencies uh, devalued and now oil is really expensive for us, right? So that everyone would have to be a more stable currency and it'd be a global reserve currency with the benefits thereof. So um, they, you know, they look enviously at the dollar and what America got out of the dollar being a global reserve currency. They thought the same would be, it'd be nice for Europe to have that too. Um, and it would, of course, enhance having a euro, a single currency, would enhance Europe's global power and prestige, just like the dollar enhances America's power and prestige. So those are kind of you know the vision, for the economic reasoning, and a little bit of the political reasoning for pursuing a single currency. But to kind of bring it all together, there is you know the, the European political uh, European integration project is ultimately a political project too. It's just paramount. And so this is about bringing 
Europe closer together, the ever closer union that you'll hear about. So it's not just you know the price of butter. It's not just economics. It's a political vision as well. So, so challenges faced by the euro. Well, the biggest one, and a lot of economists at the time, particularly American economists, pointed this out, is the uh, the differences in economic performance of the different European economies. Right? So you have, okay, we're going to have one single currency, but then it's one size fits all, and that doesn't work for all the individual economies because some are stronger and some are weaker. Uh, what happens when a weaker economy like Italy's can't uh, keep up with the Germans? The Germans want low interest rates, and their economy is you know, kind of geared around that. Uh, and but the Italian economy is not competitive enough, or wants, you know, traditionally what they would do to remain competitive would be to devalue their currency. You might remember back in the 80s, Lira was always kind of jumping up and down. Uh, and, but the Italians could do that to kind of regain competitiveness for their economy. Well, they wouldn't be able to do that anymore. Similarly, if, say, the French economy was slowing down, uh, but, you know, the German economy was heating up, where, where do you set the interest rate at, right? In the United States, you know, we have one interest rate for the entire country, but we hope that the whole country is on one business cycle. Of course, there's internal variation, right? Um, but uh, it's not as much as, say, with it, you know, between Greece and Sweden, right, and Spain. You know, there's a lot of variation there. Uh, and there are different phases of their business cycle, and um, but so the euro doesn't solve that, right? And it, it, in addition, there's the fear that you know individual countries uh, will spend recklessly. So they have these deficit limits first for joining the euro, and then eventually also for staying in the euro. Although everyone started to break the three percent deficit limit, but you know when you have limits on your fiscal tools. Like in other words, Italy, you can't spend your way out of a crisis. You can't, if your economy is going into recession, you can't just spend a lot of money. Those are the old days, right? The new system is you have to follow these rules. Well, that can be tough on some countries and they're tempted to break that 3% limit. Um, and what they don't have in Europe is a common central fiscal tool. We have the federal government spending a lot of money on a national level. If we have a slowdown in, say, Florida, they can build a bunch of highways. The federal government can say, let's build a bunch of highways in Florida. Right? Or we can subsidize farms, which the Trump administration doing right now is kind of supporting kind of agriculture uh, in, in a lot of parts of the country. You know, big federal fiscal tool. Right? The EU has some tools, but the EU budget is relatively small compared to, say, a national budget as a percentage of the economy. So they don't have what they call like a, a fiscal federalism, where you have a big uh, pot of money the central government controls and can spend in different parts of uh, the union to prop up different sectors of the economy or help slowing regions recover. So those, that, and this internal divergence of economic strength and business cycles, those were underlying problems that Face. And the thought was, well, we'll just kind of, you know, we'll start it. Again, remember, this is a big political project. This is about a big vision. Uh, we'll start it, and then these things, the, the, they'll converge over time, right? 
and we'll create the institutions to deal with these problems. This will create you know, the institutions that will address these problems. It will work out these problems, right? So the skeptics were like, that's not optimal. There is a lot of risk there. So, and those, those critics were proved to be right in terms of like some of the problems that would come up. So, I just, you know, here's a, here's a little side bit here about the introduction of the euro. Remember I said it started in 1999, not a physical currency yet, but in 2002, January 2002, there was this overnight, literally overnight, introduction of the euro in 11 eurozone countries. And featuring 7.4 billion bills and 38.2 billion coins. So it's the, basically the biggest peacetime logistical operation in European history. And it was very successful. They started printing the money in 1998, multiple sites at the same time. And then in December, they moved it all to the banks, the businesses, right? Everyone got euros, fill up, the banks fill up the ATMs overnight. And they had a transition period where the old currencies were still good. And you had like menus in two currencies. And people complained. It's like, oh, they're rounding prices up. You know, people said like the business is taking advantage of the confusion. But overall, very smooth operation, big success. And the euro was immediately, immediately becomes the world's second largest reserve currency. So the initial years after the introduction of the euro were very successful. Uh, and it was a very smooth introduction of the currency. I mean, it did drop a bit. I remember our grant value that was in euros dropping quite a bit. Uh, but it went up too. So natural up and down. Um, but overall, um, they, they made it work. Now, of course, we do know that a few years later, we had the Eurozone crisis or what's more accurately known as the European Sovereign Debt Crisis. And this was set off by the 2007-8 global financial crisis, um, and which Europeans like to point out started in America and spread <laughs> to Europe. Uh, but European, a lot of European countries were very vulnerable. Like Spanish, you know, Spanish property market was just like Florida, grossly overvalued. Irish banks were lending money left and right, over leveraged. And in Greece, um, what was you know came out was well, Greece barely got into the euro. They became the twelfth member just before about a year before the, the physical currency was introduced, and they kind of they squeaked in by you know the numbers, the criteria for joining. And what it turned out in two thousand nine, it was revealed. You know, this is just you know a year or so into the financial crisis that Greece had been basically fudging the number. Their deficits were higher than the 3%, rather significantly. Their debt was higher. Uh, and this made a lot of investors, a lot of bank investors and people around the world nervous. Like, can Greece meet its debt obligations? And then so this caused a panic uh, and worried that uh, no one would loan to Greece, interest rates went up. They wouldn't be able to make payment on their loans. And that's that contagion spread to those other European countries uh, that we might have heard called the pigs, uh, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, Spain. So they all had different problems, uh, but they were, uh, the cause of their problems were different, property markets, banks, whatever. But 
they all face the same problem. If people thought they could, wouldn't be able to pay their debt. And so there's this immediate kind of panic and crisis. And in Greece, um, there were these famous bailouts starting in 2010, three bailouts. And people thought, okay, well, Greece felt, Greece did very well from the Euro. Uh, remember they had the 2004 Olympics, they built all this expensive infrastructure. The country was feeling wealthy because they could borrow money cheaply. And so they borrowed a lot of money, particularly from Northern European countries, like the banks from Northern Europe, were only too happy to loan at these low interest rates, because everyone's benefiting from these low interest rates. Right? It used to be Greek borrowers would have to pay higher interest rates because of the risk factor. Okay? But now with the euro, that's gone. But the problem is that you borrow a lot of money, and then when people say like, uh-oh, will you be able to pay this back? Right? So that's what, where Greece got. And so from the perspective of a lot of Northern European um, politicians and publics, they thought, well, Greece, you guys borrowed all this money cheap, and you know, now you're kind of paying the price for this. Right? And you should therefore suffer the consequences, or most of the consequences, for borrowing so much and being so profligate. Right? This was kind of a more morality play was uh, you know, these are spendthrift Southern Europeans, not just the Greeks, but the Italians and the Spanish. Uh, and so you're gonna have to pay for the consequences. From the perspective of the Greeks and, and other Southern Europeans, it was like, well, you guys loaned us all this money cheaply, right? And you guys are on the hook. Your banks, if we default, you're, you're screwed. So you should help us out. Uh, and you know you guys are doing very well. What happened to European solidarity? You know, aren't we all in this together? Shouldn't we work something out so it doesn't all just fall on us? Um, so there was all this talk about okay, do do we reduce Greek debt? You know, do we repackage it for them, or do like European banks that lent the money do they take out a haircut? Do they take you know loss on their debt, their loans? There are a lot of debates about this. You can see a pretty clear divide between Northern and Southern Europe on this issue. And obviously, um, you know, German citizens didn't want to feel like they were paying for these bailouts, uh, although they were just basically like lower interest loans to cover the debts, right? It wasn't just like free money, basically. Um, and the Greeks felt like, you know, the Germans and the Northern Europeans were imposing this austerity on that we have to reform our economy, make all these changes, do these drastic cuts and expenditures that's decimating our social welfare system. I went to Greece with a UDA program in the spring of 2013, and I remember seeing like all these closed stores, and most striking thing, just as a, you know, a, a brief visitor, was closed gas stations. That really spoke to me. It's like, wow, you know the economy is doing poorly when gas stations are just shuttered. So now the Greek economy um, has since rebounded. I'll get back to that in a minute. But you'll remember the third bailout in the summer of 2015. That's when they had that new leftist government said we're not we're not going to take austerity anymore. And you know it's, there was like this brinksmanship. You know is Greece going to default and be kicked out of the eurozone? And then there could be like some huge crisis for Greece and the EU if this happens. Everyone's speculating on it. And then at the last minute. They cut a deal and basically the leftist government kind of caved in and kept the austerity program in place. So there was this constant brinksmanship, you'll remember, where the EU 
and the, the wealthier uh, countries of the EU would drive these hard bargains with the Greeks, and the Greeks would kind of threaten to default. And it's always like, this is going to happen? Is Greece going to default? Are they going to go broke? And then at the last minute, they'd get a deal. But this brinksmanship wasn't good, obviously, for the perception of the Euro and the EU. Everyone always thought, like, wow, uh, is this, is this you know, a way to run a currency? Um, you know, and, and this crisis is just keeps going. You do the minimum to keep the, the country stable, but then the crisis comes up again. So you'll remember this just went on and on, this brinksmanship, question of bailouts, and then these ballot boxes, you know, it was always going back to the ballot box. Voters didn't want to feel like they were bailing out uh, Southern European countries, so it just kept going. Um, but eventually, after the third bailout in 2015, you know, the economy is recovering across Europe, and the situation in Greece and these other countries starts to stabilize. Uh, and the bailout program ended in 2018, so, um, but the Gre Greece still has competitiveness issues. You know, all these reforms haven't transformed Greece into, you know, Finland uh, in terms of competitiveness, um, or the Netherlands, and they still have a big debt problem. So Greece still has the burden of this long-term debt. So it's still an issue for the country, even though the worst of it is over, right? It's, it's a lot of young people, educated people, just left the country and are probably not going back. So the, the country lost 25% of its GDP and has not recovered. So that's kind of like what the US lost during the Great Depression. And it still hasn't recovered. Um, whereas other European countries, like here, Spain in 2017 got back to where it was at the start of the crisis. And France is above it. Um, so Greece, though, even though the economy is doing much better now, and even in surplus, and now they're kind of seen as like success case, this has had a huge impact on the economy and social impact on the country. <coughs> okay, last slide. So, you know, you can see kind of how the, the, the debt crisis kind of left a bad taste in people's mouths about the euro and the eurozone. But on the positive side, Europe, the EU, the eurozone has survived the sovereign debt crisis. Whereas a lot of people were predicting, you know, it's going to collapse. Or at least the Greeks would have to withdraw. Um, but I think you have to again remember that keeping the euro and the eurozone intact was always a, a, a political and economic priority. They would all lose if it fell apart. So they would always, in the end, I think, come to back it up and, and support the eurozone, even if you know there's this brinksmanship. Um, so they, they did keep the euro. Uh, the Greeks kept the euro. The eurozone stayed together, and in fact, grew from 16 to 19 members. The Baltic states joined during this period, basically. Uh, and right now, the euro is actually quite popular. Something like 65% of Europeans support the euro. You know, So it's, it's kind of rebounded a bit. Um, now, and the ECB used quantitative easing, uh, where they buy, they're doing these buybacks of these bonds, these sovereign debt bonds, to ease the crisis. You might have heard, remember hearing Mario Draghi, the head of the ECB, saying, we'll do whatever it takes to, you know, <coughs> and that was critical. The ECB's intervention like this, and um, so you know, so the, there's a plus there, uh, and then there's some reforms that were implemented during the crisis. You know, more banking and budget oversight by the EU to make sure like this doesn't happen again, 
right? Uh, a European stability mechanism to provide aid where it's needed. So that, again, to bolster these economies that might be teetering, you know, send a message that will back these countries up. So, you know, they know that they use these to kind of get through the crisis, but also to prepare for the future. So, you know, don't let any good crisis go, uh, pass without taking advantage of it. You know, the EU uses this as an opportunity to pass like, needed reforms. The challenges, though, are that countries like Greece and Italy are still pretty heavily uh, saddled with a lot of debt. And Italy is now the one country people are worrying about that they might default, like soon even. Um, have a lot of political problems. Uh, they, they, um, the economy is just not competitive to pay these debts, um, their, their, their sovereign debts. And uh, an economic slowdown could easily put Italy over the, or other countries over the brink. And right now, how's the German economy doing? Not a great, hmm? great slowing down. Not slowing down. German is slowing down. Uh, you know, Germany's a big export leader. Well, there's a lot of international trade issues right now. Uh, so the Chinese economy is slowing down. Germany's not exporting as much. You know, so. Um, Germany is slowing down, other is European countries, Britain. Hmm? Is that because of the tariffs that we've been? Um, like, indirect, you know, China, the Chinese economy is slowing down. Tariffs kind of contribute to that. German, Germany doesn't export as much as China. I don't know what the numbers are like right now, but you can see the international trade mood right now is, is not great. But there's also just, some, I think, some cyclical slowdown from, from Germany. They've been doing quite well. Um, but Britain's slowing down because of Brexit, right, which also contributes to the German slowdown. So I don't want to put it all on, on China, but I say you can see where these challenges are right now. And so if Germany's slowing down, the whole Eurozone starts slowing down, what could happen next, right? Something could set, if we have another global recession, right? We're gonna have these problems again. Uh, the, the, the Greece and it is not solved, it can come back. And the ECB, while it has these monetary tools, you can lower interest rates, or do qualitative easing again, right? Where it's buying back these bonds to kind of, you know, put more money back into the economy. Um, it probably is going to be insufficient to handle a big, another big economic crisis. And they don't have those strong EU fiscal tools. They don't have that federal government that can spend a lot of money. And kind of the ECB kind of can do a little bit. The European Commission can do a lot of it. Uh, a little bit of it, but they still rely on the national governments to kind of reflate their economies, right, if things slow down. And they are limited by those deficit rules. So, puts Europe in a bind. So, um, so people worry about this coming, uh, the possibility of another crisis coming back. And the future is, well, there's an ongoing debate in Europe uh, about what countries should do to prepare for another possible recession uh, or economic slowdown and, and how but further to take this integration that they started pursuing with Euro. Um, countries like France want to deepen integration and, and, and economic integration and cooperation and things like budgeting and fiscal matters. So they envision, President Macron envisions and has proposed a, a, a Eurozone budget, right? That fiscal tool, we can spend money where we need to. And, and help countries that are in need. Um, 
and, and also do, um, that's his big thing, but there's also proposals for a uh, bank deposit guarantee, like our FDIC guarantee, right? Um, so depositors feel they can trust putting their money in European banks, cross borders, everything is gonna, um, is gonna work right. Uh, and turning the European stability mechanism into a proper big European monetary fund that can bail out countries and, and help through the countries that have economic crises. But you know, some countries like France tend to pro uh, uh, propose and promote these kinds of reforms that are more centralized, strengthen the central institutions. But countries like Germany, usually more skeptical because they worry, well, two things. They create some moral hazard that, right, if you just give people money and there's no consequences and they'll always get bailed out, they're gonna do the wrong thing. They're gonna be profligate uh, and we're gonna just keep running into these problems. And they feel, and the second part of that is then they feel that it's gonna be the richer countries like Germany or the Netherlands or the Scandinavian countries that are gonna have to, to bail those countries out. But from the perspective of these other, you know, say the Southern European countries or France, um, it's kind of between a northern and southern European country in, in, in many ways. Um, they're like, well, we need to do this for European solidarity, and this is just the way forward for Europe. You know, so we all benefit when, when all of our economies are working. So that's where kind of the debate is right now, um, and hopefully, um, we won't have another recession and go back to the previous slide anytime soon. So thank you. And yes, questions. Um, I was wondering uh, where do you think the issue of unemployment plays in the conversations that are taking place in Europe since the 80s? There are so much evidence that unemployment is one of the crucial stabilizing factors, especially mm. when it's happening among the youth, which is happening significantly among the youth. Yeah. Um, well, it's traditionally been a big problem for a lot of southern European countries. Um, Greece, Spain, Italy have always had high youth unemployment. During the crisis, it was astronomical. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I know like 50% was kind of then became like the norm in these countries, and a lot of young people left. To, they went to like Germany and Britain uh, because they can. Uh, one of the problems here that I didn't I didn't mention, I think I skipped over it, is you know labor you know Europe doesn't have the labor mobility the U.S. has. Not only do we have the fiscal tools, we can spend money in Florida, but people in Florida can say, you know, there are no jobs. I'm going to move to California or to Seattle. People in Greece, if they speak English or German or French, they can move, but most people can't. They're stuck, so they don't have the. Even though you technically can move, it's not so easy. Um, so that's part of it. I mean, there's there's not the labor mobility, and a lot of these countries they have a very rigid labor markets, um, and which makes it you know it's hard to fire people. I don't want to put it all the blame on this, but you know this is kind of the thumbnail version of it. It's harder to fire people, so um, companies are reluctant to hire people, and you know people have these nice you know employment contracts. And, but then you have a two-tier two system where you have the, the insiders and the outsiders, and the young people are often the outsiders. And so they decide, okay, I'm gonna move. But not everyone has the option to move. Um, but uh, the unemployment rate in a lot of European EU countries is really, really dropped too. So like Germany, it's very low. Britain, it's, it's quite low. Um, and France has tried to do reforms 
to kind of deal with some of that structural unemployment, uh, like youth unemployment. But sometimes these reforms are unpopular. Speaking of France, what about the Yellow Vest stuff? How oh, that all this stuff? yeah. Well, um, I haven't been following that as closely, but in, in broader terms, you know, Macron, who, you know, has his own political party and comes from the socialist party or socialist tradition, um, he's in many ways very much a liberal reformer, and he's, you know, wanted to pursue a lot of these economic reforms, um, and um, uh, there's a lot of uh, um, resistance to the French people, you know, it's like, well, we don't want all these changes, um, and, um, you know, he, he, he's a banker by training. A lot of the stuff, you know, people say, oh, this makes sense, uh, these liberal economic reforms, but yeah, it, it's kind of, um, it's very much damaged his popularity, and the Yellow Vest movement has really um, taken off. And and also, this is against the backdrop of the whole Eurozone crisis led to populist movements across Europe. You probably talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, you know, it's within that context uh, too. So Brexit, which I'll talk about, you know, yeah, a lot of people are unhappy, not just the French. So Phil, you know, as a Scandinavian. The places I love to go to are Greece and Italy. And I've gotten, I've been there several times, uh, taken tours with the travels. Aren't they earning a boatload of, of cash for all the tourists coming through, or is that just a wash? I, I would say, you know, you know, Southern Europe is, is a beautiful place to yeah. come. It's so. not the same as like selling big old cars, though. No, that's Greece also had a challenge of accepting you know, hundreds of thousands of immigrants you know, at the same time all this was going on. But yeah, I mean, but also the travelers bringing in money. Um, yeah, I don't know. I know. I remember they were talking about that would help, you know, and people were going there because it was so cheap. You know, you felt kind of guilty. It was like, you know, I'm coming to get cheap here, but I'm helping the economy. Um, and um, and they have a very strong tourist se uh, sector. But yeah, I mean. It, it, doesn't lead to like the structural reforms, I guess, that would help the economy be well, people that go all over the countries yeah. either, and so you're not, like a lot of the smaller, the smaller villages that are actually still struggling, people moved away from those, and so it's this whole, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't lead to like, I guess, broad economic revival, it's yeah. just very focused. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. How much do uh, cultural interpretations hinder progress on developing stronger central tools. I'm just thinking, oh, you know, hundreds of years going back to even Protestant Reformation, you've got German regions, right. just the Italians, the church, and uh, they've always been trading with each other and, and with various penalties and incentives. Yeah. But how much 
countries like Greece, do they have uh, do they have a, an honest place at the table of some of these reforms, or are they diminished because of they're still being penalized for the mistakes they made? They have different values. Yeah. Um, well, certainly, I mean, the economic crisis brought up a the, you could say a cultural, but also an economic division within Europe um, between Northern and Southern Europe. Uh, and but you know even within Southern Europe you know some of the countries were like you know the, the, some of the, like I think it was I, I think it was Portugal was actually kind of not wanting to cut much or was it Portugal or Spain I can't remember now cut much slack for Greece because they were like we're doing the reforms and it's tough but we're committed to doing this we know we need to do this so we don't think you know we're sympathetic but also we think you have to kind of go along with um, uh, you know some changes. Um, I, I tend to think, yeah, you could definitely see that the, the Northern European countries had this strong kind of morality play aspect, where it's like, the, you know, you can't give money to the profligate. Um, you know, this is just teach them to keep doing it. Um, it, it also sounds like this, you know, kind of, you know, Protestant work ethic type uh, situation. But at the same time, you know, you can see that, um, uh, you know, they were in... Um, the, the, the economic difference too. So not just cultural, but there was an economic difference too. It's like they would lose out by being, um, you know, uh, very generous in this situation. And they didn't really actually give a lot of money. They just kind of basically provided low interest loans. It wasn't just like here's a handout. They call them bailouts, but a lot of the Southern European countries say like they reject that term. And we didn't get bailouts, you know, um, not as like people kind of properly conceive them. And you know, I also feel kind of with culture, it can explain some things, but then there are a lot, you know, a lot of things obviously change and cultures change. Uh, and um, you know, America, people say like Americans, culturally we don't save. Well, it turns out we used to actually be pretty good savers. Um, but now it's like, you know, we have it in our heads that we just culturally, we can't do it anymore because we're addicted to our credit cards. Well, there's like structural factors involved with that as well. So I kind of hedge on saying, you know, th these people are always profligate and these people are always savers. So does that kind of answer your yeah. question? Yeah. yeah. There's definitely a division though in Europe about, but this also ties into like a vision of Europe. Who wants centralization? And, who believes a little bit like the Scandinavian, a little bit more skeptical of this centralization for a variety of reasons.